from the Gettysburg and 91.1 WCBT Gettysburg. I'm Ben Ponce, and this is On Target. I'm Mary Fraser. Today on Target, we'll discuss medical amnesty and a Lambda Chi Alpha blast from the past. Then we'll sit down with Gettysburg College President Bob Uliano. Stay with us. Let's get into the news. So, you know, a few, uh, maybe a maybe a little bit of a lesser, uh, uh, slower news week than, than last week, uh, but still some, you know, trauma and drama occurring around campus. Speaking of trauma and drama, last week at the Gettysburg College Student Senate, the Senate Opinions Committee, chaired by your hero and mine, Jack Lashendock, uh, presented an opinion for ratification by the Student Senate uh, that suggests to the college, and of course all Senate can do is suggest, it has no real power over anything, but it suggested to the college that the medical amnesty policy, which currently provides that in the event that Mary and I were out being nefarious, and Mary's about to die of alcohol poisoning or something. And as I, I do, as I call DPS to come save Mary, and so she gets transported to the hospital. That I am am protected from from uh, disciplinary retribution by DPS, but Mary can still get a whopping one point in the college's conduct policy. Uh, that which, is correct, Ben. Which currently allows you up to nine points before you get sent home at point 10. Uh, in any case, some students believe that this policy will dissuade uh, people from uh, calling for assistance for their friends who may need it. Uh, and so the opinion suggests that nobody get points, everybody, you know, just moves on. Uh, and interestingly enough, it appears that the impetus, according to some sources that I've spoken to uh, for this, was that the policy as it stands, in which case, in which, in the situation, the reporter uh, is not subject to disciplinary action, is not always enforced such that some reporters have been, and apparently there was at least one anecdote wherein a college official told someone that if they didn't want points, they shouldn't have uh, called DPS. Now, I, that sounds like one of those things that people, uh, you know, pretend is true but isn't really, or that at minimum there's more to the story. But uh, who knows? I, I mean, I wasn't there, although truthfully the person who told me this wasn't either. So who knows? But in any case, uh, Mary, your thoughts on medical amnesty. Um, well, I definitely think it's important for the person making the phone call to have medical amnesty. Um, but I, I don't think one point is enough to argue that it should be taken away. Um, because, um, if someone truly needs, um, to be taken to the hospital, points should not matter. Um, if, you already have enough points. That singular point is going to thro throw you into that 10-point category when you need to be sent home. Maybe you do need a semester off um, to recollect and figure out some stuff. Um, maybe you need um, some time home and away from the college lifestyle. Um, on your second 
Um, transportation, I believe you are also sent home for a semester, whether you have enough points or not. I'm not quite sure if that's true. I think that's true. Um, so again, I don't really see the point of that one point being that big of a deal. Um, I think really either way. I don't really think it matters. Yeah, and I would go a step further. In the case that even if there's no policy whatsoever and that you're subject, you know, you're responsible for your conduct and what I think typically happens is that there's been some underage drinking and then that's what precipitates this. But if you are part of the Gettysburg College community and you see another person who's part of the same, or just really another person in general, and you don't have the moral upstandingness or intuition to, you know, call an ambulance when somebody needs an ambulance, regardless of whether you, you know, might yourself be subjected to discipline for misbehavior that you've engaged in, you probably shouldn't be in the Gettysburg College community to begin with. If you don't have enough moral authority to figure that out, what are you doing here? I agree with that. Um, I probably wouldn't state it as strongly, but I do agree with that. Um, and also, if you, the, have, if you have nine points and this is going to be the point that sends you over the edge, what the hell are you doing out drinking anyway? Yeah, do some community service, sir. Um, get some of those points knocked back. Or just act like a person that's capable of living a functioning life. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, I mean, I, well, they're not, the person that makes the phone call always has amnesty, right? They're just talking about the person being transported. Well, yeah, apparently there have been some situations where the person making the phone call has also gotten smacked for something. Now, you know, it's probably one of those situations where they're not at, if I were speculating, and that's all I can do here, but it's likely a situation wherein the person who makes the phone call doesn't get, you know, has the amnesty that would protect them from a conduct violation uh, for underage drinking. But, you know, then DPS shows up and, oh, there's some weed on the ground. Oh, well, you know, you don't have it for that. And that's what you're getting, gotcha. you know. If I had to guess, that's what I would guess the situation is. Uh, and, you know, again, like, y you don't have any, like, this isn't the police. This is... You know, you, you, we could be calling the police, I suppose, but I think that would be worse for people. Like, if you don't want to have the college kangaroo court system litigating your misbehavior, then don't misbehave. Or go to a public university where there's an actual police force, and then you get a few constitutional protections, but then you're not dealing with Ron Wiaffi when you, uh, you know, are underage drinking. You're dealing with magistrate judge so-and-so, and you get a criminal record. And so, you know, it's really a matter to me of personal responsibility. And, you know, I know that personal responsibility isn't always something people are into, but. I don't know. I feel like having to be transported is like a wake up call. Um, and that one point just adds to a obviously much needed wake up call. Um, and taking that away is just less incentive um, to maybe not consume as much alcohol well right and like i know people who have been transported and i don't think they're bad people i don't oh, think that definitely. they're you know engaged in lives of moral turpitude but like 
sorry, moral turpitude is a phrase that appears some, there's some crime or some, excuse me, some position you can hold where you can be removed for moral turpitude. Turpitude. Yeah, and it makes me laugh every time. But in any case, uh, you know, you know, I know people and you know people who have been transported and, and like it's not the end of the world. And, and I think that the people who I know who have been transported have, you know, would prefer having received the medical attention they need and getting a singular point after that situation to having had a friend leave them there. And so, you know, oh, well, didn't get the point. Congratulations. I mean, you can be right, but you can be dead right, as my great-grandmother used to say, usually about getting hit by a car. But, <laughs> you know, I, it was you had the right away. You can be right, but you'll be dead right. Uh, oh, my gosh. Yeah, well, in any case. But... This just seems to me like a solution in search of a problem. Last week, Senate tabled it, uh, and and uh, it's on the docket for this week's meeting. You know, if the proposal was to make the amnesty protection for the caller more ironclad, such that, um, you know, you call up DPS, and regardless of what they walk in on when they come to get the friend... Like, they're not going to get you, even if in my hypothetical scenario there is just plainly visible drugs or whatever. Like, okay, but I really just fail to see how the prospect of a victim, of a, of a person in need of being transported receiving one point after that happens, being a disincentive for any person on this campus to assist that person in receiving the help that they need at that time. Yeah, there shouldn't even be a question. Points should be irrelevant at that point if if the situation is that dire. Yeah. Now, I mean, I suppose it could also be a there could also be a discussion about what the point of having what the point of a, getting a point for being transported is. Probably just so it's there's a record of it. I don't know. Um, and I you know, but I think to your point like we've used the word point 73,000 times. But to your yeah. point, you know, multiple... Uh, and I suppose one argument is that being transported is enough of a wake-up call in and of itself. But I don't know. Sometimes people need that record on paper and that incentive to not do it again other than having gone through it once. All right. Well, so that's that. Senate you know, up to its usual um, standards in terms of looking for looking for things that they can do. Uh, other than that, what else is going on? I see we had, oh, this was kind of uh, something. There was, the Gettysburgian publishes this feature called What I Remember, which, in which college alumni, um, <coughs> in which college alumni share war stories <laughs> from their time at Gettysburg. And there was a particularly unique one that appeared this past week. And Mary, would you like to regale us with the details of this once and former, and I suppose current, I suppose it's a once a brother, always a brother situation, brother of Lambda. So uh, this, this article is titled Lambda Chi Alpha Social Probation. Um, and... This brother, um, as Ben was saying, talks about his time in um, this fraternity. 
um, while it was on campus. Um, one of the highlights he chooses to share with the students, one that is a personal favorite of mine in the piece, um, is when they hired a helicopter and dropped thousands of ping pong balls all over the campus to advertise their open house that evening that was open to the entire campus. Lambda, I dare you to do that now. I think that just in general, we could stand with more ping pong balls and more helicopters at the Gettysburg College campus. I could get behind that. Uh, can you imagine the screams? There'd be so many screams. I'm a fan of helicopters. Helicopters are cool. They are cool, but like the screams from the ping pong balls. Ben. Yeah, well, you know. Anyway, that's not, I mean, that is an amusing part of the story. The upshot Definitely of the story amusing. is even more alarming. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so then he goes on to tell us about um, when he said when, uh, so he was a brother at a time when freshmen could rush or, um, fraternities. Right. Um, so when they had their freshman pre pledges, um, a tradition of theirs was to, um, go to a strip club, um, known as... Blaze Star, I believe. Surprisingly enough, I'm not familiar with it. Wow, Ben. Shocker over here. I can barely stay on my seat. Um, yes, yeah, so they would attend Blaze Star. Um, and second shocker in a row, one of the brothers was uncomfortable with this situation and told... The Episcopalian pastor in the chapel at the time, who then proceeded to tell President Hansen. Um, so President Hansen, of course, after hearing about this little adventure that the uh, Lambda brothers would go on every year, um, called this brother into the office um, and announced that they were to go on social probation. Um, yeah, which apparently that happened occasionally in the 1960s. Occasionally. Um, so, of course, this was detrimental um, to their social life. Um, so, Ben, would you like to uh, tell the crowd here? how they decided to fix this problem? Well, you know, the, the writer of this piece says that they were this, this social probation was intended to learn them a lesson. And learn them a lesson it did. They called up their Lambda chapter, the Lambda chapter up at Bucknell and made arrangements such that every weekend the Lambda brothers of Gettysburg College would pile into vehicles, I'm sure not at all inebriated behind the wheel, hop up 15 and spend their weekends partying up at Bucknell before <laughs> coming back to Gettysburg on Sunday afternoons. <laughs> Just for um, reference, Bucknell is 73 miles away and is an hour and 53 minutes by car. Yeah, but it's all on 15, so, you know, you figure you don't have to be that uh, lucid to to, uh, to be able to make that trip. Uh, <laughs> I'm just... I'm, the, the, the article writer says that, that it's a miracle they made it back safe every time. Uh, comforting, Ben. So, so comforting. Yeah, I feel pretty comforted, but... I suppose perhaps the moral of the story is that you th if you think that there are some out-of-control organizations on this campus now, maybe you should have seen the 1960s. Um, it, was a, it, was, it was just a, a sign of, of different uh, 
of different times. Um, you know, let me just read you the conclusion to this piece. <laughs> A few quick-thinking brothers devised the perfect solution. We would contact our chapter at Bucknell, report the news, and invite ourselves over to their house on the weekends. Woo! Contact was made. The invitation was accepted. And we all sighed in relief at the thought of being able to, all caps, party! And Oof. not study, study, study. So on a Friday, we headed up 15 for a two-hour drive party, consumed vast quantities of Hawaiian punch and grain alcohol, and drove back to Gettysburg, all bleary-eyed on Sunday. Boy, that social probation taught us naughty boys a thing or two. Mm -hmm. If anything, we learned to navigate Route 15 without hurting others or ourselves. Thank goodness. I, I really have no words after that. What do you? What do you? What do you say? Um, I don't encourage drunk driving, so I'm not entirely to be clear happy. To be clear, when they drove back, quote, bleary-eyed on Sunday, it's possible they were not drunk but merely hungover. I suppose. We can only hope. Well, on that note of out-of-control individuals, let's briefly pivot to one more out-of-control individual, the President of the United States. How's that for a pivot? <laughs> there was an event last week on campus, and let me just set the stage. At the end of the faculty meetings, there are... Uh, these there's basically an open mic for announcements. And last Thursday, the day after, I think it was the day after, well, no, I guess the week after, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, announced that the House would begin a formal impeachment inquiry into the president. Uh, a, a member of the faculty gets up to announce that the Fielding Center for Presidential Leadership Study, and, and to be full disclosure, I am a fellow of said center, uh, would be hosting an event entitled How to Get Rid of a President. And the faculty lost it laughing at this announcement. <laughs> and uh, Bob Uliato is at the mic and says, ha, ha, timely. And then the meeting was over. But then the event happened, Mary, and you were there. I did. I uh, I went because, um, well, I would have gone anyway. I really wanted to go. Um, but I did go for a class. Um, so it was a really... Awesome event. Um, forgive me, I forget. David the, Priest. Thank you. Former CIA presidential briefer. All right. Um, super official um, job title. Um, no, but he was great. He was a great speaker. Um, definitely kept the audience's attention. You know, it's a Thursday, late Thursday night. People are really tired, um, but I felt like everyone was really engaged the whole time. Um, and for people who aren't regularly in poli sci classes, who aren't talking about this all the time, especially if you're in, um, American government classes, um, he really broke it down how exactly you can get rid of a president. Yeah, um, he recently wrote a book entitled how to get rid of a president history's guide to removing unfit, unable, unpopular, or there was one more on presidents. Yeah. So, um, he talked about how like. Um, the first obvious one is assassination or death, um, by other means. Um, he, he was recounting ways that you could remove a president. He wasn't suggesting no, assassination yes. as just feel like we should throw that out there. Yeah. Sorry. That's not how I meant to come <laughs> off. Um, 
and he um, was bringing up the 25th Amendment. Um, he talked about impeachment, finally, um, which was definitely something the whole room wanted to talk about. Um, so that was really interesting. Um, yeah, the I event, really enjoyed it. The event made the Gettysburg Times wild yeah you know only only the hottest news makes the gettysburg times yeah but he was a really great speaker i feel like you could have little to no interest in politics and still have enjoyed the uh conversation yeah he was here a couple of years ago as well i think my first year he talked he was here about his last book which was about the president's daily intelligence briefing which was also interesting but a little bit more poli-sci niche specific uh, this one, of course, uh, we planned this event several months ago and just so happened that the week before it happened, an impeachment inquiry was launched. So, you know, how's that for timely? But yeah, it was a good event and a good turnout. So figure we could throw that in there as a little bit of self-promotional material for the Deer Fielding Center. Yeah, presidential definitely. When Center. is your next lecture, Ben? Well, Mary, the next uh, big Fielding Center event, October the 29th, Tom Rich former governor of Pennsylvania and the first U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, formed the department after 9-11. He was the one that George W. Bush called. Uh, it should be a fascinating event. He's now in his 80s, but um, he is still sharp as can be, I've been told, by uh, James Mullen, in fact. James Mullen, our, our friend, apparently plays golf with his uh, a staff member of his. And... So, you know, credit to James Mullen for, for helping to get this event organized. Um, and Mary, you apparently find it funny that our buddy James plays golf. No, not that he plays golf, just that he casually knows this man. <laughs> I just think that's funny. Well, you know, connections are what they are, I suppose. All right, well, I think that's a good note to end on. Not really, but we're gonna end there anyway for our news segment. We'll be right back with the Bullet Report and what I promise is a slightly less freewheeling interview with the president of Gettysburg College, Bob Giuliano. Stay with us. And now it's time for the Bullet Report. It's been a fairly humiliating week in Gettysburg College sports action, except for when it hasn't. On October the 1st, the field hockey team defeated Stevenson 1-0. The men's soccer team defeated McDaniel 1-0. And the volleyball team on October the 2nd defeated Shenandoah 3-0. The field hockey team lost to Bryn Mawr 3-2. The men's golf team finished 3rd of 6 at the Center Invitational. On October the 5th, the women's golf team finished 2nd at 5 at Dickens. And the men's cross-country team finished 6th at 40th at Paul Short Invitational. While the women finished 22nd of 44 at the same event. The volleyball team defeated Bryn Mawr 3-0. The football team lost to Moravian on homecoming 33-16. The women's soccer team defeated Bryn Mawr 5-0. And the men's soccer team tied Haverford 2-2. It's a fairly short bullet report, but thus endeth it nonetheless. And we are thrilled to be joined today on Target by the president of Gettysburg College, the newly installed president of Gettysburg College, Bob Giuliano. President Giuliano, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Ben. Thank you for having me. So we are coming off a weekend that uh, I did not know coming in was going to be uh, spoken from the lectern as Bob Day. 
but I had heard in the lead up many students calling it that. Uh, first things first, how do you feel about having a day named after you? Um, I'm trying to suggest to my wife every day should be like this at home. She hasn't adopted this yet as a principal, Ben. Uh, it was a wonderful day on campus. It was obviously something that was uh, uh, just unbelievably personal and rewarding, but we'll, I hope we'll get to it in a moment. But I also think celebrated Gettysburg College at its finest. Um, the work of the faculty and the students left me very proud of this place. And I want to spend a good portion of our time talking a little bit about kind of your inaugural address and, and kind of your message and, and how that will translate into your vision for the college. Before we get into the content of it, I'm a little bit curious about kind of how you started at some point, I'm assuming, with a blank piece of paper and, and, and knowing that you would be making a major address to a you know, large swath of campus constituencies and just Talk a little bit, if you would, about kind of the process of going from that blank piece of paper to the address that we heard on Saturday. Well, one of the things you should know, <laughs> about three weeks before the address, the paper was still blank, which was getting me a little bit anxious about whether I was going to ultimately be able to uh, fully conceptualize what I wanted to do with it. But what I knew I wanted to do, Ben, was to um, underscore what makes this place what it is. Part of that is that sense of community. Part of it is a history that nobody else has. Part of it is an orientation to the world that has come through to me. And so my task was to figure out how in 25 or so minutes I could capture the essence of that in a way that I think was both true to the history of this place, but I hope, and others will judge this, um, inspiring of the future that we are heading into. Mm -hmm. um, again, others will judge whether I succeeded at that, but certainly that was my goal was to really uh, focus on what is distinctively Gettysburg and build off of that. And mentioning 25 minutes made me think of uh, Harvard President Emerita Drew Faust's uh, speech, which she opened with a, a quip about a previous Harvard president who maybe spoke for a little bit more than 25 minutes. <laughs> yeah, my goal was to come in under two hours. I think I succeeded at that. So as this, the speech was at least a success on that. And let me just say what an honor it was to have Drew here. Um, you may have gathered that there's a deep personal friendship between the two of us. I so deeply admire what she did at Harvard and having her here to uh, send me off, as it were, into this job was uh, more than I could have asked for. Just a small little point. Um, you may have heard from Chris Zappi that when Drew was a little girl, she wrote to President Eisenhower and urged that President Eisenhower advance the notion of racial justice. Uh, Drew's present to me on the installation was the Ike button that she wore as a little girl. Wow. How did that, I, I'm just curious as an aside, how did that, how did uh, Provost Zappi come across that? Did, did you tip him off or? I did not, but um, I suspect with a little bit of research, it's not hard to find this. When Drew was being installed at uh, Harvard some many years ago, I'm quite confident that this was part of the, okay. the backstory about her life and her commitment to things that matter to me here, and that is creating an inclusive community. Well, I was watching her as Provost Zappi was introducing her, and she seemed surprised that that came up, and so I didn't know if this was a, you know, someone was diving in special collections and found this or, or what had happened. But uh, in any case, coming back to your speech, during your speech, you quoted, among others, uh, Thurgood Marshall, Martin Luther King, Dwight Eisenhower, and Abraham Lincoln, uh, quite a... Uh, a quartet there. What was it about those leaders that made you feel compelled to channel kind of their public comments in your, in your uh, inaugural address? Well, let's put them into two camps. Um, Lincoln and Eisenhower, in part simply because of the 
I'd say two things about each of them. Uh, one was their powerful relationship to this land and this college mm -hmm. and the lessons we can learn by virtue of their connections to us. Um, for Marshall and King, the lives they led um, and the power of the comments that they offered and how they bore on the point that I was trying to convey, which is that, um, as I said, democracy is not a spectator sport. Ben, I know this is something that matters to you as well, but the notion of civic engagement and the responsibilities we have, mm -hmm. given the privileges we have with the education that we get here, uh, to go out there and make a difference, and you saw it in the Marshall quote, um, and you know, the the point I was making, or more importantly, Dr. King was making, is one that I think cannot be um, stated too often, and that is we do live in an interdependent world. Um, and uh, we sometimes lose sight of that when we seek to pursue our self-interest at the exclusion of the broader good. And that's particularly true in an academic community where we are on top of one another intellectually um, in our residential spaces, um, recognizing that we are better when we act collectively and we think about how we can benefit each other's education um, matters enormously to me. And I love the quote because it was lyrical, it was powerful, and it was right. Mm -hmm. And what you just said makes me feel a little bit better about this next question, which is getting to the crux of your address. I detected three kind of major themes, and you just mentioned two of them uh, that, that I had gleaned. So I guess we're on the same page there. The three that I had written down were the United States uh, faces challenges, acute challenges in terms of particularly in terms of polarization and, and kind of democratic legitimacy might overstate it a little bit. But second, the colleges and universities have a unique role to play as a civic institution uh, in American society in effectuating this idea that democracy is not a spectator sport. And third, that at Gettysburg, uh, we're uniquely positioned, particularly because of our history, to have something unique to say about um, the importance of this civil dialogue. First, I guess, what might you add to those, you know, would you say that's a fair summary and what might you add? But fundamentally, what are you, what were you hoping that folks would take away from the address? I, I must have done a reasonably good job, Ben, <laughs> because I think you captured it quite well. If I had any quarrel with it, it would be the first characterization, which I think is largely right, but I would broaden the lens a little bit and just talk about society more, not just the U.S., mm -hmm. but we're seeing in other democratic societies, the, uh, uh, the, the, we see it in Britain, we're seeing it in other European uh, democracies, increasing um, uh, factionalism. Um, and so the lessons that we learn here, I think, apply more broadly. And we're also graduating students who are going to have an impact, not just locally and not just nationally, but some uh, to the world at large. And so mm -hmm. uh, what I'm hoping for is a set of uh, an orientation uh, that has benefit on the local stage, on the statewide stage, on the national stage, but also potentially internationally. So that's the that's the slight, slight mm -hmm. um, amendment I might make to your characterization of what I was seeking to accomplish. Mm -hmm. uh, and kind of flowing from that, you professed a commitment to two values that I think at times on some college campuses have come into conflict or at least juxtaposition, which might be free speech on one hand and, and the importance of kind of that uh, robust dialogue where there may well be strong disagreements, and then simultaneously this um, important institutional value of diversity and inclusion. How do you plan to lift up both of those values simultaneously on this college campus when, you know, I'm thinking about 
you know, the incident that occurred at Middlebury a few years ago with Charles Murray, where, you know, those two values came into conflict that, that turned violent. I mean, a, a professor was assaulted. Uh, and so how do you kind of, I, I don't want to set up a false choice, but balance and, and lift up both of those values. I, I like the second formulation better than the first, because I don't think it's a balance. I don't think they're fundamentally antagonistic goals, though I fully accept that the way I will often describe this, um, we have an obligation to make this a campus where everyone belongs. Um, that work takes place every single day. It is a commitment that we should be manifesting in all that we do, such that when speech occurs that may be inconsistent with the values of the campus, by the way, or at least members of the campus community, it is not for the group that feels um, properly, in many cases, aggrieved by the speech. It is not a statement about their membership in the community. And so if we are, to use your word, lifting up the importance of belonging and inclusion in everything that we do, when speech that is um, upsetting to some members of the community arises, it is, again, no longer um, the statement about their membership in the community. And we can still address the speech as speech, um, but we want to be careful for the reasons I said of being so self-confident in our wisdom that we're stepping on speech. That doesn't mean, by the way, uh, that speech with which we disagree should not be met with disagreement, mm -hmm. right? Um, free the marketplace of ideas is not everyone gets to say what they get to say, and there are no consequences to that speech. Speech with which people disagree should be met with disagreement, but I hope reasoned, um, thoughtful explanation, and uh, that is the way in which we resolve. Again, I don't think it's a tension. I think it is um, an amplification of dual values. And so in that context, there are not... I mean, setting aside perhaps uh, speech that would incite violence, are there other types of speech that you would say do not have a place on the college campus? Depends what you mean by does not have a place. I mean, would I, I am not here advocating for speech that is um, protected by the First Amendment, but with which we would all agree uh, is not adding intellectual value. So. There's a lot of speech that I think adds no value to discourse. Mm -hmm. That's a different question than whether I would suppress it uh, or seek to censor it. And the answer to the latter question is no? We have a broad scope uh, for free speech. It was defined in large measure by the work that was done before my time here. And you support that? Work. I do. I think I said that when you first interviewed me. I think I think so, too. Um, something else that I think I may have asked about in that and, first... And I just want to say one more thing about that, Ben, if I can. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the reason why goes back to what I lightly suggested at the, um, in the installation speech, and that is we need to be quite humble in our belief, in our certainty, and our wisdom. Um, you go back 50 years, um, society had a pretty clear view, for example, about the rights that LGBTQ members of the community should have, which was they should have none. Um, that work got advanced, at least in part, by the capacity of people who disagreed with those principles to debate it, to argue it, to advocate for it. And so free speech is typically, typically a means for those who are political minorities to get a fuller voice in the community. If we begin to censor 
Censorship generally, generally supports the status quo and those in power rather than those who are seeking to um, challenge the order. And so I think we should be very careful to assume that our wisdom is such that we know what is good speech and bad speech and we should start suppressing it. Mm-hmm. Um, a related question maybe, and, and this I think is something that we discussed in that first interview at least briefly, um, and, and there's actually, we're recording this on, on Tuesday afternoon, and there was news literally 15 minutes before this interview began um, about something that, uh, a, a lawsuit um, in which Harvard, uh, your former employer, where you were general counsel, uh, was a party, uh, in which a federal judge ruled this afternoon that Harvard was not, uh, in fact, engaging in race-based discrimination as it sought to enroll a diverse class. And I don't want to ask you to comment specifically on, you know, Harvard, but thinking about some, you know, that's certainly an issue that touches us here at Gettysburg as well as as we seek to have a diverse class. And I'm wondering kind of first your broad reaction to that principle that that um, was affirmed. I mean, this is something that the court, the Supreme Court has ruled on before that diversity is a goal that that institutions may seek to um enshrine in their classes. Well, I haven't read the opinion. You're right. It came out 20 minutes before (laughs) we came here. It's 127 pages long. I'm a quick reader. I'm not that quick. Uh, And you're right. I'm also not going to comment on uh, what it may mean for Harvard. There are others who do that job now. That's not my work. Um, But it is important. This case matters. It matters not just to Harvard. It matters across American higher education. And for institutions like Gettysburg, uh, that believes it's exactly what you said, Ben, in the importance of a diverse student body in creating an an educational environment in which we all learn. You heard me make reference to that as well in my installation speech um, briefly and talking about the importance of, uh, of achieving that diversity and seeing the world through the lenses that are different than the ones that we're accustomed to. Um, So I'm incredibly grateful for the outcome. I can't yet speak to the reasoning because I haven't seen it yet. Uh, And I think it is an important statement of where America is and where America needs to be. Education remains an essential aspect of uh, social mobility in our society. Um, Keeping the gates of these campuses open broadly Uh, and ensuring a diverse student body, that's important work. The court has reaffirmed that we have the ability to do that in places like Harvard and in places like Gettysburg, and for that, I am grateful. Does it concern you that this case could be appealed to a Supreme Court that has a different ideological construction than it did in the early 2000s when they last upheld this value? The Supreme Court, there's a, I don't want to go too far into law, but there is this notion of stare decisis. They're supposed to respect precedent. And I am going to believe that the Supreme Court will respect its consistent precedent in this space until proven otherwise. All right. Uh, Pivoting back to your address a little bit, I want to read one um, quote from it. Uh, and, and you're talking here about the work of the college. And you say, in short, if done well, What we do here has the promise to be the antidote to partisanship, polarization, isolation, and tribalism. It has the promise to build bridges and strengthen the garment of destiny to which Dr. King spoke, and that protects us all. End quote. How do we think about our day-to-day existence on campus as fulfilling such a a lofty or, or one might even say grandiose vision 
In other words, can the academic and extracurricular programs create the context in which that happens naturally? Uh, or, assuming the answer to that is probably no or not completely, what conscious choices do you think that members of the campus community need to make in order to realize that vision? So I'm going to digress a little bit. Um, but uh, in my prior institution, I taught a first-year seminar. Um, and the first-year seminar was designed to um, expose 12 first years, um, that was the size of our first year seminars, uh, to some of the most controversial issues in American higher education. My goal at the end of the day, Ben, was far less that they learn some deep substantive knowledge about whether it was race conscious admissions as we were just talking about, but more that they learned the habits and capacity to talk about hard issues constructively. Um, I do think that's something we can model. I do think that's something we can teach, and I think that's something that if we do well, um, students can take from what they do here and can apply to their life outside. And when they go on to then to leadership positions, whether it's in government or business or medicine or law or education or arts, um, they have learned that skill of um, creating robust dialogues but constructive dialogues. They have learned the skill of navigating difference. They have learned the importance of excellence being amplified by diversity. So I don't think it's grandiose, candidly. I think that if we do it well here, if what we do in our day in and day out existence, what the conversations you have in the dining hall, the way in which we structure the conversations in the classroom, what happens in the first year seminars, if we do it with an eye towards at least understanding that um, that is, to use another phrase I use, that is purposeful work, if we do it well, we can graduate students who have both the instinct and the habit and the capacity to have those sorts of constructive conversations and to lead in that space. And I do believe that can make a profound difference in society. Do you think, based on what you've seen thus far, that that is being done well? And yet, regardless of that answer, what areas might opportunities for improvement or growth in that be? So one of the things I have asked is that the Eisenhower Institute sponsor a series of conversations from now until November 2020 on campus about what's happening in the external political world and to make sure that we are in a position to have constructive conversations um, where we appreciate the fact that we do not all share the same um, ideological perspectives and we seek to understand the whys of that. So there's always work we can do in this space in part because the external world has changed um, and will continue to change in significant ways. So um, this is one of those things that is not a destination, but is a process. Um, and I'm quite confident that there's more that we can do, not because we've fallen down, but simply because we have new students coming in every year and the outside world changes every single moment. I haven't looked at today's news, but my guess is it's changed in pretty significant ways beyond the admissions case. I have, in fact, been following today's news and can attest to that. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, maybe as a, a final question or, or theme, you know, you, you spent, as you said, 25 minutes kind of outlining a vision or a theory of the, of the case for where Gettysburg is and, and can and should be going. As the president of Gettysburg College, what do you view as your role in affecting that vision? 
part of it is working with it's it is a vision that emerges let's just start where where it emerges from right. um, it emerges from the conversations I've had to date it emerges from the work that this institution has done well before me um, we have thought about some of these uh, issues for a good long time uh, so part of my job is to test these principles with the community and this converse this this um, uh, uh, speech was an effort in that direction uh, and then if it is, one that seems right for where we're heading um, to help the community, both through decisions I make, but in also the hortatory power of the office, right? Uh, to um, organize our, ourselves in ways that can advance the things that align with that, uh, with those objectives. I think part of what the president does is lead by inspiration, I hope. Um, lead by helping create priorities, lead by engaging the community and getting people aligned. People want this institution to thrive. I have no question about that. There is a broad consensus. There's a broad affection for this place. There's a broad consensus that our future is a bright one. Uh, what I'm helping to do, I hope, is to figure out how best do we get there. And this is the beginnings of a way in which to think about that. And I know I said that was the last question, but I lied. Uh, I thought of one more while you were talking there, and, and it... it means I should have talked brief more briefly, Ben. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. Uh, you have now been president for, I believe, three months today. Yep. Three months. It's October 1st. Um, and I'm wondering, what has surprised you most about the job and about the Gettysburg College community more broadly? Um the surprise is that I actually underestimated, which is striking, the sense of community here. That is, I thought I was coming to a very strong community. Uh, it was one of the things that drew me here. Um, but the power of the place, and you saw it this weekend. Um, I thought the spirit on this campus was phenomenal. Um, and the way that everyone worked together uh, to really celebrate the college again, to use the line in my speech, where we have been, where we are, and where we're going. From the, you, may, you may have seen the thank you note I sent to the community. Just the sheer number of people who helped us put our best foot forward, who helped celebrate the intellectual and aesthetic um, uh, culture in which we exist. Um, the music, the art, um, uh, the intellectual uh, work in the, in the uh, faculty panels and the student exhibits, um, the grounds, everything was so characteristically Gettysburg and the sense of pride that people have in the college from current students to alums, um, to the faculty, to the uh, support staff was, was obvious. And um, I knew I was getting some of that, Ben. I didn't fully appreciate just how um, vivid it would be. And it's been a wonderful, it's been a wonderful, pleasant surprise. Maybe that's a nice note on which to end. President Iuliano, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Ben. That's on target for this week. We'd like to thank Bob Iuliano for being our featured guest today. We'd also like to thank the staff of the Gettysburgian and the executive board of WZBT for their ongoing support of this podcast. 
Please be sure to subscribe to On Target on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. On Target is a joint production of The Gettysburgian and WZBT. Our theme music was composed by Diego Rocha, 2019 graduate of the Sunderman Conservatory of Music, currently pursuing a master's degree in music composition. Join us next week. I'm not sure who our guest will be, but I'm sure it'll be great. Until then, have a great week.